Leviticus chapter 9. I'll also be reading Article 32. If you'd like to follow along, that's on page 85, the back of the blue hymnal. There's a couple of verses from Hebrews as well. And first, our Old Testament reading, Leviticus chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good to build us up to teach us, to keep us in the way. Leviticus 9, 22, God's holy word. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command." So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Amen. And then, book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is consuming fire. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our, of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Article 32 of our Confession of Faith, the Belgian Confession, speaking of the order and discipline of the church. It says this. In the meantime, we believe, though it is useful and beneficial that those who are rulers of the church institute and establish certain ordinances among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, yet that they ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ, our only master, has instituted. And therefore, we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatever. Therefore, we admit only of that which tends to nourish and preserve concord and unity, and to keep all men in obedience to God. For this purpose, excommunication or church discipline is requisite, with all that pertains to it, 
according to the word of God. There was a British evangelist, preacher, who said, Leonard Ravenhill was his name. His name was escaping me in the moment. Leonard Ravenhill was his name. And he said, entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. Entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. You chew on that a little bit. You think about it and you say, wow, that really describes a lot of what is going on in our world, our entire world. The way that entertainment fills our minds all the day and oftentimes people even have a hard time producing their own thoughts on something because their whole life is filled with one piece of entertainment to the next. Uh, it was, I think, in the 80s that Neil Postman wrote that book with that really searing title, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. And Ravenhill's point, of course, and I think m- most people would have to agree, that if you have the joy of the Lord, true joy... That's rooted in God, in in our triune Lord, in our our covenant king that flows forth out of knowledge and communion with him in grace. That that becomes the the greatest purpose of our life, to, to have that joy and to love our Lord and to walk with him. Uh, but of course, entertainment or amusement can often bring us to a different place, make us forget about the joy that we have in God. And certainly in the worship of God, we see a lot of this come to the fore. This is an issue that we need to deal with in terms of our worship. When we go to worship God, are we going there to be entertained or are we going to receive that which we need from God so that we might have the joy of the Lord? truth and knowledge and grace, covenant renewal as his people. When we want to, we speak about the worship of God, how to do it properly, sometimes the lack of persecution that we have in in our nation, thankfully, uh, it makes us forget how much we need to cling to the words of scripture, how much we need to think about what it is that God wants us to do when we worship, and to forget the immense blessing of of clinging to worship as it is prescribed to us in scriptures and the joy that that brings. I've mentioned it from time to time and prayed for it from time to time, the persecution that's going on in China, particularly the crackdown that really has centered upon a confessionally reformed church there in in China called Early Reign Covenant Church. One of the issues was that the government has been trying to uh, force people to Go to worship meeting places, attend churches, you might call them, or at least they call them, we wouldn't call them that, but attend churches that conform to the laws of the People's Republic of China. They have this state-sanctioned church, I think it's called the Three Self Church or something like that. It's um, a total false church. But they were finding members of this early reign covenant church and forcing them to sign these pledges that said they will only worship in ways that conform to the People's Republic of China, the laws of the People's Republic of China. And so one member had this kind of experience and wrote a letter of commitment 
And this is what the letter of commitment said. It said, I promise to only worship God at Christian meeting places that conform to the teachings of Scripture. And I will never go to a meeting place that does not conform to the teachings of Scripture. And then this person, very courageous Christian, signed it. Um, In today's climate, it's thought that the, the greatest privilege we have is to worship in whatever way we want. Worship however we want, whatever we think is the best way to worship. But that's actually the opposite of the greatest privilege that we have. The greatest privilege that we have is to worship God according to his will and not our own. God wants worshipers. He's on a mission to create worshipers in this world. Those who worship him must do it in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. That comes from God's word. The truth of God's word. It does not come from the mind of man. The inventions of man. So we've been thinking about the importance of the church. And we come tonight to think about the importance of the worship of the church. And regulating all that we do according to scripture. God is a God who will show himself to be holy. And that's what we see in this startling account of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 9. We see at the beginning of the passage in verses 22 through 24, proper worship yields the mercy of God. Proper worship yields the mercy of God. What uh, we need to see in this account is that fire comes down both in the first half and the second half. It comes from the presence of the Lord. But two different things happen. Proper worship yields God's mercy. In tabernacle worship at this point, as God's people are still in the wilderness, approaching God was mediated by the priests, by Aaron and his sons. Moses, in many ways, acted as a priest as well. Aaron presents this sacrifice. He bestows the blessing upon the people. He he does his work as a priest, blessing, then flows out to the people. Moses and Aaron go into this tent of meeting. They minister before the Lord, it says. And then Moses and Aaron bring the glory of God out to the people. There is this this ceremony, almost this transaction of blessing and glory. As worship goes up, blessing and glory comes down. Verse 24 shows us exactly uh, what, what we pointed out with the fire. Uh, proper worship yields God's response of mercy. This fire comes to devour, but what does it devour? It devours the sacrifices. As Moses and Aaron minister according to God's instruction, fire comes out from the presence of the Lord, but they are not consumed. The sacrifices are consumed. Wrath, the wrath of God against sin, was being directed towards these sacrifices. This is what God had instituted as his proper worship. It makes you think of Lamentations 3, where it says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his mercy never ends. His mercy never ends. We are not consumed because of the mercy of God. And then, of course, the people rejoice. There is this rejoicing as they see the fire come and consume the sacrifices. Now, think about what the Israelites would have experienced in that moment. They they would have been rejoicing. Why? Because they would have seen how serious it is. that, that, That fire coming out from the presence of the Lord. Nothing to be trifled with. It's not some kind of a joke. 
It's not some kind of a show. But they rejoice because of this show of mercy. They're reminded about the power of God. They're reminded about the glory of God. They were taught something about the true God in that moment. That is what worship ought to do. The worship of God needs to teach us truly about who God is. It's about him, and it's not about us. If we are not learning about the true God and countering the true God through his word, through his spirit, then it is not biblical or Christian worship. A wonderful book, speaking of the, the worship of God, written by a Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, the reason we worship God in a slight way, that's a cavalier, fanciful, whimsical way perhaps. The reason we worship God in a slight way is that we do not see him in his glory. We do not see him in his glory. This would have been true worship from the Israelites because of the glory of God as it happens before them. And that leads right into the second half of this account where Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Now, these are not rebellious sons. They, they were not uh, like Samuel's sons, say, where we have all kinds of patterns of, of sin in their life. Moses named them among those who were brought up to worship the Lord on the mountain when the, the elders of Israel were brought up onto the mountain. They are actually named among that. He, he names Aaron, and then he names Nadab and Abihu. They were notable in the nation of Israel, well regarded, had a good reputation, but they sinned. They sinned in that they offered unauthorized fire on the altar, unauthorized fire. There's dispute about what made this fire unauthorized. Was it something that was directly against an express command, or was it something that had not been commanded to bring? You understand the distinction there. Was it a direct violation of something God had actually said? Or did they merely bring something that God had not told them to bring to the altar? He had never said, bring this kind of fire to the altar. This kind of incense. In other words, is it something that, you know, well, God hasn't said, don't bring this, so I can bring it. That's the question. The literal translation of this phrase here that we find, it says, strange fire, they brought strange fire which the Lord had not commanded them to do. It was strange fire that the Lord had not commanded them to do. So their sin seems to be that they simply brought something that had never been directly commanded. It wasn't necessarily, seemingly, it wasn't necessarily that they directly violated a command of God. It was just that they brought something that God had not said to bring. And this results in the fire that goes forth from the presence of the Lord. And instead of the sacrifices being consumed, the burnt offering, the fat portions on the altar, instead of the fire coming out and consuming the, the sacrifices, it consumes them. Nadab and Abihu. Two different results with the fire, but they are parallel. God's mercy consumes the sacrifices. God's judgment consumes the sacrificers when the priests are disobedient. What we learn from this passage, as Moses says, is that God is a God who will be hallowed. He will be sanctified. He will be honored. He will be glorified. 
He is to be worshipped rightly according to his command. That is how he desires to be worshipped. God will show himself to be holy either by his people worshipping him rightly or by judging those who dishonor him. You think about in the first half of this account when Moses and Aaron minister correctly and the fire comes down and consumes the sacrifices and it produces reverent and awe-filled worship by the people. God was sanctified in that process. He showed himself to be a holy God as he produces right worship in his people. But then also God shows himself to be a holy God when Nadab and Abihu offer up unauthorized fire and he judges those who dishonor him. God will make known to all the world that he is a holy God. And in this account we see that God manifests his holiness either in the obedient worship of his people or the judgment that he carries out because of the disobedience. You can go through the prophets, and this is really one of the resounding themes, recurring themes of the prophets, is that God is going to show himself to be holy to all of the world. And that's one of the ways that we think about our worship in Christ. We bend the knee to Jesus Christ, as we said today, Philippians chapter 2, our affirmation of faith. We bend the knee to Jesus Christ now because we are doing now what all the world will do on the last day. There will come a day where everyone will bend the knee to Jesus Christ. We are doing that now and saying we believe that he is reigning and ruling as the word of God reveals that he is. So we read in Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord. When I execute judgments and manifest my holiness, I'm going to show myself to be holy. I'm going to do so in judgment and in creating worshipers. God is to be worshipped. That's what we learn from Nadab and Abihu. And God is to be worshipped according to his will. According to his will. How do we apply this to think about worship in a a new covenant context? New covenant worship is extremely simple. And that was one of the things we saw in Acts chapter 2. Old Testament, Old Covenant worship was extremely complex. All these processes, all these sacrifices, all the cleansings. So we rejoice for the simplicity of worship. How do we apply this aspect or this account of Nadab and Abihu? Well, one of the, the comforting applications, of course, is the priesthood of Christ. We can come before the Lord with confidence Because we know that united to Christ, we come in the representation of our great high priest. And that is indeed why the book of Hebrews says, you can approach the throne of grace confidently. Because the priesthood of Christ Jesus as our great high priest, he is not a priest who can fail in his work. He is not a priest who is going to offer up unauthorized fire. He is not a priest who is ever going to be regarded as lacking anything in terms of his righteousness and his holiness. So it points us forward to Christ. One who can always minister before God. The throne room of God. So worship must be Christ-centered. That's one of the wonderful applications of this passage. And a comforting application of this passage. But... We need to remember that God is a God who never changes. We need to remember that God is a God who is jealous for his glory. That when God wants to be worshipped, he wants to be worshipped rightly. You think about 1 Corinthians chapter 14. God is a God of, uh, of order. Therefore, things must proceed decently. 
end in order. So it's not as if you can say, well, okay, so now we're in this new covenant context. You can look back to Nadab and Abihu, but now, as long as you come in the name of Jesus, you can do anything. You can do anything you want in the worship of God. No, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. See, worship must be regulated by Scripture because God has revealed his will for worship in Scripture. Think about the second commandment. What does God require in the second commandment? The words of our catechism say this, that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded us in his word. God is a God who despises idolatry, giving worship to other things. And when human beings engage in will worship, that is, worshiping according to their own will, thinking about their own ideas and saying, well, this might be a good thing in how we worship God, then we, what we do, as John Calvin pointed out again and again and again, we produce idols. We are factories of idols. God looks upon our heart in worship, doesn't he? He looks upon the heart in worship. And the heart of the worshiper can be revealed in what they desire uh, to magnify and exalt in worship. Is it God and his word? Or is it the ideas and the inventions of man? So it must be the word of God. Because when you come into a place where a, a congregation is gathered unto the word of God, or for the worship of God, and everything they do is regulated by the word of God, closely desiring in all things to stick close to what the word of God says in regards to worship, who is the one who has the authority in that place? It's God. It's God. It establishes him as the one who has authority. So that's the first reason why we do that. It establishes God as the one who has authority. And second, because as we mentioned, if we are left to ourselves, if you get a bunch of human beings who maybe love the Lord, if you get, into, get them into a room and say, okay, forget everything that's in the Bible, how do we worship God? Let's think about how we should worship God. What we're going to do is to create idolatry. Look at the history of religion in the world, the, the kinds of things that human beings can come up with. Whom do we trust to regulate worship? Ourselves or God? And then we can think additionally, where has God promised to bless us? I mean, that's really, when you get down to it, going to church needs to be about attending to the things where God has promised to act and bless. If he has not promised to act in and through something, then it's probably not worth our time. So you think about the early church in Acts chapter 2. We looked at it. It was either last week or two weeks ago. It's hard for me to keep track of the, the weeks. There's one thing about pastoral ministry that my wife and I are now learning after these couple years it seems like every other night is a Saturday night and I have two sermons the next day and it's the strangest thing um, so I don't know when it was a couple weeks ago Acts chapter 2 attending to the teaching of the apostles what were you what was the early church doing in its infant stages attending to the word of God the breaking of bread to prayer Teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Why? Because that was where God was acting and moving. That's the means of grace we talked about. 
That's what a church ought to be doing, attending to the means of grace, because where has God promised to act? Where has God promised to bless his people and nourish his people? In the word, the sacraments, and prayer. That's what the church ought to be doing. How? What's the manner of it? Well, I think one of the best ways to think about the manner of worship and the kind of posture we are to have is to go to scripture and say, what is the kind of worship that happens in heaven? Worship is a heavenly experience. We come together in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. God unites us together as a heavenly congregation. We join in the church triumphant of all those who have gone before us and died in the Lord, who are praising Jesus Christ and exalting his name. It's a heavenly experience. The kingdom of God is intruding into this age in this special way. So how does worship in heaven take place according to scripture? We could think of, of course, a couple of very famous places. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet is swept up to this vision in the throne room of heaven. He sees these glorious angels, these fearsome beings. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah is undone because of the glory of God. Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle John, this similar kind of experience, swept up given this vision of the throne room, but then it happens in this Christ-centered way, not that it wasn't that way in Isaiah 6, but more explicitly, then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation chapter 7, a couple, verse, a couple chapters forward, John looks and he sees a great multitude uh, numbering a, count, a countless number, multitudes from every corner of the earth exalting the, the Lamb, praising the Lamb with a similar song. You go to scripture and you see that worship in heaven is as John Payne, Pastor John Payne puts it, it is fervently reverent fervently reverent you think about that in uh, hebrews chapter 12 let us offer worship unto god with reverence and awe why for he is a consuming fire worship in heaven is fervently reverent there's this urgency to it that who we are in 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 our human nature is not adequate to bring the the glory and the honor that god deserves It's fervently reverent, falling down before God. It's gloriously dignified. There's a a dignity to it. It's fervently reverent. It's gloriously dignified. It's exceedingly joyful. Exceedingly joyful because of the sacrifice of the Lamb, the resurrection and life of the Lamb. It is thoroughly God-centered. It's all about the glory of God. It's not about the glory of man. It's ardently focused on the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's ardently focused on the person of Jesus Christ. That's what worship in heaven is all about. You think about a passage like Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ, the, 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 the truth of Christ, the gospel, let it dwell in you richly, admonishing and teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, joining in the the singing of the saints. You see that explicit command to sing unto the Lord there in Colossians chapter 3. Let it be worship that is fervently reverent, gloriously dignified, exceedingly joyful, God-centered, and uh, focused upon Christ. Sadly, too often modern worship is radically informal. It's presumptuously innovative, and it's biblically impoverished. Church that is rightly ordered according to Scripture does all of these things. We have simple worship here, you might say that. Simple worship, it's a gospel liturgy. It leans into the means of grace. And we don't have the, the, the show and the drama and all that kind of stuff because God has not commanded us to do that. What are the means of grace? Where has God promised to bless his people? You want to be a healthy Christian, a growing Christian, Christian that is being sanctified. Sit under the preaching of God, attend to the means of grace, the sacraments, the prayers, the singing of the saints. These are the things where God has promised to act and bless. Why we must do this, why scripture must shape our practice. Well, as we have said, regulating all that we do in scripture establishes God as the authority. Isaiah chapter 66, we read this. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? These things my hand has made, and so these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. In other words, this is the one for whom I will have a special regard, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That we have... There's an application there for our worship. Are we humble? Are we contrite in spirit? Do we tremble at the word of God? Psalm 138, as we read it this morning, God has exalted above all things his name and his word. He's given us his word. When we, when we come together for the worship of God, should we act like anything else should be the center of it? Should we act like man-made ideas should be why we come together for worship? No. He's given us his word to dig into it, to learn about it, to know him more through it. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. The things that God has revealed are the things to which we go to say, what would you have us do? What would you have us learn? What would you have us know from it? The word of God. There's always another text. There's always another passage. There's always a a deeper level to which you can go in the Bible, in God's word. That is the center of what we do, and it establishes God as the authority. Regulating all we do in Scripture not only establishes God as the authority, it protects the conscience. It protects the conscience of God's people. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And when you have a church that is mired in the ideas of men, and in the inventions of men, and in newfangled ways perhaps to worship him, what it does, it starts intruding horribly upon the, the, the realm of the human conscience. And people are left saying, I'm not sure what God wants me to do, and if that was just what a man wants me to do. It needs to be regulated according to Scripture. 
The church is to be about telling people what God commands of them. That is the power that has been given to the church, the keys of the kingdom. What does God command of you? Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance. He commands you to pursue holiness through faith in Christ and by his grace. He commands you to develop spirit-enabled virtues as he sanctifies you in the truth. All of these come out of the word of God. But when the church becomes about man's opinion, it's confusing. Has God commanded me to do this or not? Matthew chapter 15, this wonderful passage, famous passage that Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. They they accuse Jesus and his followers of breaking the traditions of the elders. And Jesus said... Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And God commanded, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, uh, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. This is why our traditions, our, our standards, always fall underneath the authority of the word of God. It's even uh, the Synod of 1958, which approved a change in the Belgic Confession. It's underneath the authority of the Word of God. The Word of God is the final authority. Regulating all that we do protects the conscience, and it also establishes a basis for church discipline. You see church discipline there in Article Chapter 30, in Article 32. Article 32, it says that church discipline is part of the work of the church. But a church can only discipline insofar as it attends to what God has said. You can't discipline somebody based on the opinions of man. And that is why the long-established practice of the church of opening up the word of God and the work of the minister is to tell you what God has already said. That's what a minister does. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. Right? You lose your minister tomorrow, you go and find another one who faithfully proclaims the word of God, you all will be fine. You'll be fine. What has God already said? What has God said? And it's about opening that up. Regulating all we do protects the conscience. It establishes a foundation for church discipline. Regulating all we do, according to scripture, of course, gives the glory to God. Gives the glory to God. Man-made inventions can't be seen as innovative if they are never given the chance to flourish. If you're a church, a congregation that is united under the call to honor God and to honor his word and all that you do, uh, this place will be a place that glorifies him and is about him. And uh, when people come through these doors, they know that this is a place that seeks to honor God. And sometimes in an imperfect way, none of us are perfect, but we seek to give all the glory to God and to see his name magnified in the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise and thanks and, and glory. We pray that by your spirit you would establish all of these truths in us. For your honor, for your glory. Through the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing, breathe on me, breath of God. That's